together 2 Kings chapter 19 this morning. I'm going to begin reading down at verse 14. Verse 14 to the end of the chapter. Let's read. Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And listen to the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. And so they have destroyed them. Now, O Lord our God, I pray, deliver us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Then Isaiah, the son of Amoz, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard you. This is the word that the Lord has spoken against him. She has despised you and mocked you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She has shaken her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? And against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily lifted up your eyes? against the Holy One of Israel. Through your messengers you have reproached the Lord, and you have said with many chariots, I came up to the heights of the mountains, to the remotest parts of Lebanon, and I cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypresses, and I entered its farthest lodging place, its thickest forest, I dug wells and drank foreign waters. With the sole of my feet, I dried up all the rivers of Egypt. Have you not heard? Long ago, I did it. From ancient times, I planned it. Now, I have brought it to pass that you should turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps. Therefore, their inhabitants were short of strength they were dismayed and put to shame. They were as the vegetation of the field and as the green herb, as the grass on the housetops is scorched before it is grown up. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. Because of your raging against me, and because your arrogance has come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips and I will turn you back by the way which you came. Then this shall be the sign for you. You will eat this year what grows of itself. In the second year what springs from the same and in the third year so reap, plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. 
the surviving remnant of the house of Judah will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem will go forth a remnant, and out of Mount Zion, survivors. The zeal of the Lord will perform this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he will not come to this city or shoot an arrow there, and he will not come before it with a shield or throw up a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, by the same he will return, and he shall not come to this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. It came about as he was worshiping in the house of Mishrach, his god, that Adramelech and Sherezer killed him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat, into Esharadon, his son became king in his place. Amen. Now we have been studying the life and the reign of King Hezekiah. And again, uh, young people, I want you to remember that Hezekiah is a good king. He's faithful. He's a king who's brought about a lot of needed reformations uh, for the people of God. He re restored a lot of the temple worship. He also, very importantly, restored the Passover, which was that meal that remembered the Exodus, that the night in which God brought his people out of Egypt. Not only was the Passover significant for remembering what God had done in the past, but it pointed them to Jesus Christ. And that's why we get in the upper room Jesus at the Passover instituting what became known as the Lord's Supper. That uh, he said, this is my body, it's broken for you. This is the cup, in this cup is my blood of the new covenant and drink of it. And so he was saying, essentially, he was the Lamb of God in that upper room. He was the one that the Passover was looking forward to. Because remember, the lambs that were slaughtered on the twilight uh, every year at the Passover could never take away any sin. And it was always pointing to Jesus Christ, the lamb who would take away the sins of his people here. So Hezekiah, an important figure. And I want to talk about um, today's lesson in two parts. Number one, we're going to look at Hezekiah's prayer. Number two, we're going to look at the answer that the Lord sends through the prophet Isaiah. The first part comes only in verses 14 through 19. And then uh, we have really from verse 20 to the end of the chapter, the second part here. So let's talk first of all about the prayer that Hezekiah prays. And I want to make applications as we go. Look in our scripture again here at verse number 14 here. Verse 14, then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And he went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it out before the Lord. So here we see Hezekiah, he's taking the letter that the uh, ambassadors from Assyria brought to Jerusalem. You remember that there was a, a little diplomatic meeting 
outside the gates of Jerusalem that the messengers of King Sennacherib uh, came and they were telling the people of Jerusalem they needed to surrender the city and that Sennacherib has destroyed all the other nations surrounding them. He's destroyed all their gods. He's burned up their images. And he's going to do the same to Jerusalem if they do not surrender. And so they give a letter, and they say, take this to King Hezekiah, and King Hezekiah will then surrender to our king, and you will be spared a lot of suffering uh, if you will do this. Well, what does Hezekiah do? Hezekiah, he takes the letter from the Assyrians, he reads it first, and then what does he do? He immediately goes from the palace and he crosses the street to the temple. Remember that the, in Jerusalem, the king's palace sits across from the temple. You've got church and state right next to each other. Distinct, but both next to each other. And Hezekiah goes and he goes to the temple where the living God is. And he spreads out the letter as if to show the Lord. Now, boys and girls, we know that God is omniscient. That means he knows everything. Uh, God did not have to have the letter spread out for him to know the contents of it. He knew the contents of it even before it was written. But nevertheless, Hezekiah, I think, as to demonstrate his earnestness, spreads the letter out, and by this gesture, he's asking God, I think, to take special note of this letter and the arrogance contained in it of this invading nation. And then after Hezekiah spreads out the letter before the Lord, Hezekiah begins to pray. And we see that the first action of the king really is to what? Seek the Lord. Now, we are reminded here, first of all, I think of our own king, Jesus Christ, and how much Jesus lives, we are told in the New Testament, make intercession for us. And so I, we see, first of all, Hezekiah praying as a type of Jesus Christ. That means that Jesus Christ, who has lived for you and he's died for you on the cross, he's been raised for you after three days from the tomb, he has uh, made appearances unto men for 40 days and he ascended into heaven. And what is Christ doing? Well, one of the things Christ is doing, we are told, and he's doing many things. He's, he's gone to prepare a place for us. He's building his church. He's reigning as a king. But he is also, we are told, making intercession for us. He's praying for us. That in Jesus Christ, you have somebody that is praying for you. You know, we all know the comfort of what it is to have church family praying for us. We ask people, please pray for me. I'm going through this particular difficulty right now, and I need the sustenance of God's grace. And I know that God gives grace through the prayers of his people. And, and so we ask people to pray for us as we go through difficult times. But we also need to see that Jesus is praying for us. Jesus, who is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, who has lived in this veil of tears himself and has overcome all the sin and the suffering that this world brings at us, he is praying for us. This was a, a, no doubt an encouragement that even for Peter, when he realized he had betrayed the Lord in, in denying him, Peter could remember that the Lord said, I am praying for you, Peter. And the Lord Jesus Christ is praying for us. And if we could hear 
uh, Jesus praying to the Father, what comfort would that bring to our own soul? <coughs> Knowing that Jesus is bringing our needs, the needs of his church before the heavenly Father. And so Hezekiah, in this way, is serving as a type of Jesus Christ. We must always remember that when we read the Old Testament, we are to look for Jesus Christ. Because Jesus himself, in John chapter 5, said that you search the scriptures. Uh, for in them you think you have eternal life, they speak of me. And so we see Hezekiah is a type of Christ. Christ loves you. He's praying for you. And he is praying as Satan, no doubt, is attacking you and is trying to overthrow you, trying to overthrow the walls of Zion if he can. And yet we have somebody, we have a king who is praying that we will have victory. Now let's look at the content of Hezekiah's prayer. That's also in the part of, second part of verse 15. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, and here's the content, O Lord, the God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. So as we have seen Hezekiah praying, now I want us to focus on the content of Hezekiah's prayers here. First of all, what does he do? He acknowledges God to be a covenant God. He is the God of Israel, he says. He's made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their forefathers. And the Bible says this, that God has made a covenant with you in Jesus Christ. Paul teaches us in Galatians that you too are a child of Abraham, even though you may not be biologically and genetically Jewish. You nevertheless are considered a son and daughter of Abraham. Why? Because all who believe in Jesus Christ, we are told, are children of Israel. We are engrafted into the covenant that God made with our forefather Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We are like a wild vine, Paul says, and we are engrafted into the tree of Israel. And we have a circumcision made without hands, having been circumcised by the Spirit of God in our heart. We too, therefore, have become Israel. And we have the same claims that those in Hezekiah's day had, and even more, because the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So when we see that God made a covenant with his people, you need to remember we too are in that covenant of grace through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, and I'm pointing here to the Lord's table, Jesus Christ said that, you know, this is the new covenant in my body for you. You're a part of the covenant now. You are in this relationship. You are in this union, this bond of friendship with God through the work of Jesus Christ that we see beheld and, and before us at the Lord's table each Sunday. We are in covenant with the Lord, and therefore we have special access to God. And the only way you can know God is through faith in Jesus Christ. And so, friend, if you do not know Jesus Christ, then you do not know this covenant. You are a stranger to this covenant. You are an outsider. You are an alien, a foreigner to this covenant. But here's the gracious invitation. You may become a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. This promise that is extended and that Hezekiah claims for himself in this prayer 
It is available for you through faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what your nationality is. It doesn't matter what your ethnic background is. It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic standing is. All are invited to faith in Jesus Christ and to become a part of the family of God. All are welcome into this bond, this union with God himself. We are God's people when we come to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is the way we gain entrance into this covenant. And so I ask us this morning, are we in covenant with God? Are you in covenant with God? Have you made a covenant with God? You children here today, you are in the covenant by way of baptism, but have you owned the covenant by faith? Have you taken hold of the covenant for yourself and said, I am not only, you know, the flesh and blood prophet, nothing. I was born by nature into this family. I was brought into this covenant by the providence of God. But I, now, as a teenager, as a young person, I want to own the covenant. I want to own the covenant for myself. How do I do that? I do it by looking to Jesus Christ as my king, as my prophet, as my priest. He's the mediator of the covenant. He is the one who has fulfilled the obligations to this covenant. He's the one. You know, there are conditions to this covenant. It's unconditional, but it's conditional too. It's unconditional in that it comes from God sovereignly in grace, but there is the condition, obey me and I will bless you. And who obeys God perfectly? None of us except Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus is essential to this covenant. You must put your faith in covenant. Well, Hezekiah makes use of the covenant, and we should too. When we pray, we should pray, and, and we're, we, we are coming and we're saying, Lord, we are not ordinary people. We are your people. We have been bought by the blood of your son. You have imparted the Holy Spirit to us. You've indwelt us. With your spirit, you've imputed the righteousness of Christ to us. Lord, therefore we ask, we implore you, hear us in this crisis that we're going through. Save us, Lord. Give us your mercy, your grace. That's what Hezekiah is doing here. He is making note of the covenant. You are the God of Israel. You are the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and we are your people. Lord, hear me today. Answer my prayers, O Lord, not for my sake, but Lord, for your sake. Because you belong to us and we to you. Now, notice then after Hezekiah notes the uh, covenant in this prayer, notice he employs something else that is helpful for good praying. And he acknowledges the attributes of God. He says, God, you are sovereign. You, you govern the nations. You created the nations. They exist because of you. You are the God who is not just a God over Israel, not just a God over his own people, but, Lord, you are the God who sovereignly rules over everything. And therefore, you are a great and mighty God. You are a, a God of infinite power infinite strength. Nothing comes to pass apart from your sovereign 
will and decree. That which God decrees always comes to pass. That which God decrees uh, will always happen. Nothing can thwart the plan of God. And so Hezekiah, secondly here, you see him acknowledging the sovereignty of God. He says, O Lord, the God of Israel, there's the covenant, O Lord, God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. You are the great creator. So he, he mentions the covenant. He mentions the sovereignty of God. And then what does he do? He comes boldly in verse 16. And he asks God to hear. Look at verse 16. He says, incline your ear. Let me ask you something. How many of you ask God to listen? How many of you, as a part of your petition to God, ask God, hear me, Lord? You get a sense of Hezekiah's earnestness here. You see, here's the problem you and I have in prayer, one of them. You and I oftentimes will pray just so that our, our conscience will quit accusing us of being prayerless. We, we, we sometimes are happy just to pray so that we can say we prayed. But there's no praying in our praying. They, 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 the prayers are as what the Puritans called prayerless prayers. Prayers that really, really are not interested whether we've been heard or not. That's not what Hezekiah is doing. Hezekiah is wanting God's audience. Hear us, Lord. Open your eyes. Have you ever asked God to open his eyes? I bet most of you have not ever asked God, open your eyes. That's bold, isn't it? Now, he's not crossing into irreverence. I want you to understand this. Okay? He, he is asking God, but he's asking with a sense of boldness. Now, we see many times in the scripture this kind of boldness in faith and that Jesus often responded by saying I haven't seen such faith in Israel you think of the Syrophoenician woman and she is pursuing Jesus to the point that the disciples are bugged by her presence and always asking Jesus for help I have a demon possessed child Lord and Jesus answers nothing and she keeps following them and she keeps crying out to Jesus about this. And the disciples are like, send this woman away. And so Jesus even puts her off and says, you know, I've come to the children of Israel. It's not good to give the, the bread that belongs to the children and throw it to the dogs. You don't go to Publix and buy a loaf of bread and then throw the bread on the floor for your dogs. It was meant, you know, to make sandwiches at home for your family. But even that, notice, doesn't put her off. She is so bold, so importunate, that what does she say? She latches hold of that. Oh, okay, you, you've, you, I'll take a dog. I'll take, I'll take the status of a dog if it gets an answer for me. And she says what? Even dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus is like, wow. Such faith I have not seen. 
such boldness. That's here, O Lord. That's open your eyes, O Lord, isn't it? You know, we see this with the blind man. He's sitting on the side of the road, and he hears a commotion. He says, what's this commotion I'm hearing? And they say, it's Jesus. He's coming down the street. He says, oh, this is my opportunity. And he begins to cry out, Lord Jesus, son of David. He uses the messianic title, son of David. Have mercy on me. Nothing's done. Pray doesn't stop. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus, have mercy. Will you be quiet? You're making a scene. And he does it all the more. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Son of David. And Jesus stops. Turns to the side and goes up to him and says, what do you want? Lord, I want to see. Your faith has made you well. We see that Jesus said that we were not to give up in prayer. Simply because we are not seeing answers to prayer as soon as maybe we wanted or expected. Jesus told us a parable of the importunate widow, the woman who was going before an unrighteous judge, not to say that God is unrighteous, that's not Jesus' point, but to say that the sovereignty of God, from our perspectives, may, it may seem as though God is unrighteous or uncaring or unjust. But she keeps coming to this unrighteous judge and she's saying, I need you to defend me, I need you to defend me, I need you to defend me. I've got these creditors. I've got these problems. I need the law to help me. I'm a widow. I don't have anybody else to help me. You, judge, have to help me. You have to help me. You're the only one who can help me. And she exhausts him to the point where he doesn't even want to go to work the next day because he knows who's going to be there bothering him. And he says, look, I'm not a righteous judge. He, he takes graft. He takes bribes. He doesn't care about this widow. She can't add to his political coffers. She's not going to help him with his reelection campaign. She said, I don't fear God. I don't care about this woman, but please just send her away. What do you want? And he gives her what she wants. And Jesus says there's a lesson in that with regard to prayer. Now, he again, he's not saying that that represents the nature of God. Remember, you, we're not supposed to stretch parables to the nth degree. But the point is what? Sometimes it seems, from our perspective, as though God is not listening. Sometimes it seems as though God's not answering, or God doesn't care. And the, the temptation is, in those situations, to say, well, forget it. And just give up. And quit. And never receive the blessing that God intended to give. Now don't get all hyper-Calvinist on me and go around. Yes, God is sovereign, and yes, he's going to bring about what he wants to bless. But he uses means. And if you quit praying, well, then you don't get it. You have not because you ask not. That's the rule of the kingdom. And if you quit praying, you quit asking, you, then guess what? You quit receiving. And Hezekiah is, is this is a desperate king. Now, we need to ask ourselves, do we quit too soon? Are we fo focused so much on decorum, even in the Wednesday night meetings, 
that we would never want to make a scene like this before God. Hezekiah is a desperate man. And he's not going to allow, even as a king, he's not going to allow the, 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 the regal decorum that normally is his to keep him from desperately seeking the Lord until the Lord answers him. And so he spreads out this letter, he pleads with the Lord, he acknowledges the covenant, he acknowledges the sovereignty of God, and he asks God, hear me, Lord. He's earnest with the Lord about this. He's not praying just so he can go back and say, well, I prayed about it. He's not quitting until he gets an answer. He wants mountains to be moved. He wants the Red Sea to be divided. He wants the River Jordan to stop. He wants the armies to go. He wants the victory. He wants the prayers answered. He wants deliverance. He wants God glorified and his people saved. And so he says, look at the words which Sennacherib has written to reproach you. Look at the insults. Look at the threats to your people. Look at the boasting. Look at the pride. Now Hezekiah in verses 17 and 18, he acknowledges that Assyria has indeed devastated the surrounding nations and their gods. He says, this is a fact, and he doesn't dispute it. But what does he do? He acknowledges that those gods weren't really gods at all. And here's the main difference, boys and girls. He is saying, you see, what the Assyrians are thinking is that Jehovah, the Lord, is just like all the other gods of all the other nations. And this point is Hezekiah's main point in this prayer. But Lord, you're not like these images, these idols. They have eyes they can't see. They have ears they can't hear. But Lord, you can see. You can hear. You're the living God. You created everything. You're the sovereign God. Lord, you are the God. And you are being, you are being misrepresented, Lord, by the Assyrians. They are saying that you are just like these other gods that are vain, that are nothing. So Lord, for your own sake, for your own name, for your own glory, Lord, answer our prayers. Show the world that you are the living God. Notice that Hezekiah's prayer is that, what? God would be glorified. And here again, I think, is another reason our prayers often do fail, is that we are not aiming chiefly at the glory of God. This is a point where many of us go wrong in our own praying is because we aim too low. We do not tie our intercession to the glory of God in all the earth. We, there are many Christians who don't think God's going to be glorified in all the earth, except somehow at the very end. But what does Jesus teach us when we were taught to pray? What did he say? Our Father who art in heaven, what's the petition? Hallowed be thy name in all the earth. Hallowed be thy name. That is, Lord, make your name hallowed among the nations. Lord, that the nations would see that you are holy. Psalm 86, the psalmist prays, Lord, all nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship thee. Lord, we are aiming at your glory and at your worship. We were studying in Sunday school in the high school class that, you know, why does God save people? You ever thought about that? I mean, what's the chief reason? 
Did you know that the chief reason God saves people is not so that they are saved from hell? Did you know that? That's not the chief reason. The chief reason God saves people is that he would have worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. John chapter 4, that Jesus said, the Father is seeking such who will worship him, who will glorify him, who will magnify his name. That's the chief reason. Is his own glory, his own honor. You know, I at times have wondered if my own prayers have not had greater efficacy because of the want of this element, that they're not aiming sufficiently at the glory of God. Do I wrestle importunately? Do I aim at the glory of God? Am I too quickly satisfied in praying that, well, I've done my duty? Or do I really want to see God answer, to glorify himself? Is my desire the glory of God and the will of God to be done? So Hezekiah prays. I've got to move on to the second part here. Uh, more quickly, the answer. In verses 20 to 37, we see the answer to this prayer. That's the rest of this chapter, really, is God uh, coming to Hezekiah through the prophet Isaiah. Yes, this is the same Isaiah uh, who has his large book in your Bible. And Isaiah says to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, I have heard you because you prayed to me. What an answer. I have heard you. What an answer. You know, we, I think, I'm an experiential Calvinist, so I do think sometimes God does let you know he's heard you. Where you labor in prayer, and you're praying, and you're praying, and, you, and you're on your knees, and you're making intercession, and you feel the presence of God and the Spirit of God coming and giving you a sense of deliverance, a sense of relief, a benediction, if you will. Why does God do that? I think in, to encourage you that you've been heard. That God has heard you. And even if it isn't the answer that you have sought, God has heard you. He, is, he comforts his children who cry out to him. Just as a mother will come and comfort the infant who is under great distress. This is a, a tremendous relief to Hezekiah to know that he has been heard by the living God in the day of their distress. We remember that in the book of Daniel, when Daniel was told by an angel of the Lord that he was heard, the first day he began to fast and pray. You remember Daniel's praying for weeks at a time and praying with fasting. And, and the angel comes and says to him, O oh Daniel, from the first day that you began to seek the Lord, from the first day you began to pray, I heard you. The Lord heard you. But what? There was a spiritual war going on that was unseen to any human eye. And, and the angel of the Lord tells Daniel that there was a spiritual hindrance going on. And that's why the answer seemingly was delayed. We don't always know what's going on. And one of the reasons we must continue to persevere in prayer. But what a relief to know that he was told, even at the very first, the Lord heard his prayers Hear the word which the Lord has spoken to Sennacherib. Um, excuse me. The word which the Lord has spoken here against Sennacherib is this. He has despised the virgin daughter of Zion. The Lord says to Hezekiah through Isaiah, 
I've heard the arrogance, the words that Sennacherib has boasted, how he has despised you, my people. And she boasts in her many chariots. She says, as Assyrian, Assyria, I've done great things. I've conquered foreign lands. But the Assyrians failed to realize that it was the Lord who predestined all this to occur. Look at verse 25 and 26. This is a really interesting theological moment in the answer here. Because the Assyrians are doing what, boys and girls? They're saying, we're great. We're number one. We have a great military, and we are defeating all these nations, and any nation that stands up to us, we're beating them. Well, look at what God says to Hezekiah. He says, have you not heard long ago I did it from ancient times? I, who's speaking here? Is the Lord. I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you should turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps. Who was it in control all along when the Assyrians were getting their victories? The Lord is saying, I know. I was the one who gave them the, those victories. Those bloodthirsty pagan Assyrians, I allowed them to have their military conquests. Therefore, their inhabitants were short of strength. They were dismayed and put to shame. They were as uh, the vegetation of the field and as the green herb, as the grass on the housetops is scorched before it has grown up. He said, look, I, I caused all these nations to fall before the Assyrians. I'm sovereign. I've decreed this, and it's come to pass. You know where else you see this? In Isaiah chapter 10. We don't have time, but on your own, maybe this afternoon you can look at Isaiah 10. And, and he, he says the same things. The Assyrians, he says, they're just my instrument of, they're just the instrument of my wrath. They're my big spanking stick. And I use the Assyrians to discipline all these nations. And you know what? And then he says, I'm going to take this spank stick and I'm going to break it over my knee. Once I'm done with the Assyrians, I'm going to do to them what they were doing to others. They're going to, they're, you see, they were motivated by their own bloodthirst and by their own greed and malice. See, God is not the author of sin, but he is sovereign over sin. He is sovereign over evil and wickedness, and he will use it for his own holy and glorious purposes. What's the most evil thing that ever was done? He's putting the Son of God to death, accusing him of blasphemy and then executing him. And whose plan was that? It was God's plan. We're told in Acts chapter 4, this God had predetermined, he predestined to occur. But without any imputation of evil towards the holy God, he was sovereign over the wickedness of men but he through that cross he has brought about the greatest deliverance that man has ever known that through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross that we should have eternal life and so God is teaching Hezekiah here that yes the Assyrians are doing what they're doing but I'm the one who permitted them to do it and then he gives however the encouragement but I'm not going to let them do it to you, Hezekiah. I'm not going to allow them to overtake Jerusalem. They're not even going to put up a single ladder on the wall of Zion. 
Not a single soldier is going to take a ladder and throw it up against the wall and begin to climb up it. Not even one. And here's the sign. And then he, he begins to, to say uh, in verse 29, This shall be the sign for you. You will eat this year what grows of itself, and in the second year what springs from the same, and the third year sow, reap, plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. And you're like, what? What kind of sign is this? <laughs> what it, basically what God is saying, Kyle and Dalich commentaries suggest that what the Lord is saying here is there's, there's going to be two harvest seasons missed. Now that doesn't mean that the occupation will be an entire uh, 24 months, but at least if it began at the fall, it'll be at least a year. Does that make sense? So from the first fall to the second fall, that, that the Assyrians will be in the, the land of Judah, but they will never come to Jerusalem. And then in the third fall, life will return to normal. So there will be this season of tribulation, but in that tribulation, God's holy city will not be overthrown. And then in the third fall, God, as a sign, will allow the people of God to go back to their normal life of, of planting, sowing, cultivating, and reaping. And then he says this. In addition to that, just as you go back to sowing and reaping, so I will do with my own people. I will plant you the city of Zion and from you will come forth a great multitude. A great harvest will come. He said, For out of Jerusalem will go forth a remnant and out of Mount Zion survivors for the zeal of the Lord will perform this. He says in verse 30, Surviving remnant of the house of Judah will again take root downward. He's saying, I'll plant Zion, and they will shoot roots down, and then they will bear fruit upward. I will see to it that the people of God are spared this judgment and that they become fruitful again. And then verses, i got to keep moving here, verse 35 to 37, the angel of the Lord. Commentators here suggest that this may be the very same angel of the Lord that went on the night of the Exodus and killed all the firstborn in Egypt, that the same angel smote 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in camp. So commentators seem to suggest that it was likely some kind of miraculous pestilence that came upon them and went through them very quickly in a single evening. Let me say uh, this in closing. I make a couple applications and, and close here. Number one, God works wonders in the earth. The seemingly impossible is possible with God. The God we serve is the almighty God, the God who's created the nations. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is, shall we say, highly providential. And, and we should take comfort in that. In that, we also should, secondly, the historical account here should persuade you to renew your own trust in the Lord, whatever circumstances are confronting you or will confront you. <coughs> this historical account should persuade you to renew your own trust in the Lord, 
you and I should be awed by the same providential power that delivered Hezekiah, that also led Jesus to become a man, live among us, and die on the cross to save us from our sins and the very wrath of God and the justice of God. You see, Jesus came into the world, and like the angel of the Lord there, Jesus came into the world not to destroy men's lives, but to save and to show himself to be the Son of God, that we would believe in him and repent of our sins. And God used that same power displayed in Hezekiah's day. He poured out his judgment, and he poured out his wrath and his condemnation on his own son so that you and I could have eternal life, that we might go to the heavenly Zion that awaits us. And the question we close with is, you, have you closed with Jesus Christ, yourself by faith, have you beheld the power of God in the gospel? It is in the gospel and the gospel alone which is able to save that God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Amen. Father, we thank you for our lesson today and thank you for your word and pray the spirit would apply what we've heard. Thank you, O oh God, for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.